when a society is corrupt, then the powerful rule. When a society isn't corrupt, then the great have authority. You're not witty, you don't sparkle, and you're not going to get laid. Are we willing to pay the price for our words to be valuable? When did masculinity become something bad? As I sit here with ripped jeans and my legs crossed. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome to Flagrant You. Today, I'm very excited to say that we are sitting down with acclaimed Canadian psychologist, uh, New York Times bestselling author, and one of the most influential people of our generation. It is Dr. Jordan Peterson. So let's get into it. How do you keep yourself humble? You have, in the last, I don't know, what is it, like four years, maybe? You have, have had this, like, amazing rise in popularity, an amazing rise in influence. And I'm sure you've had tens of thousands of people reach out to you directly and share with you how you changed their lives for the for the better, right? Have you maybe saved their lives? I'm sure there's tons of people that were suicidal and they started getting into your stuff and they're like, no, there are other things that I should live for. Thank you so much, Dr. Peterson. How do you not let that change your disposition? How do you how do you check yourself? You You're not a religious man per se. Uh, where is your well, check? I would say that I'm a religious person. Okay. I, I, you know, people have asked me if I believe in God, and I said that I act as though he exists, which for me is a fine definition of belief, because I think that people, the best indication of someone's belief is actually their action hmm. rather than their, their statements about their beliefs, let's say. Yeah. So, um, I have all sorts of checks apart from that. I mean, there's a responsibility that goes along with being someone who people turn to when they're in trouble. And so I have that in mind all the time. I also understand that many of my ideas, perhaps most of them, perhaps all of them for that matter, it's not appropriate for me to claim them right. because I've read so many great ideas of so many great people and right. I've been able to synthesize them and to put them perhaps in a new form and maybe in a form that's more accessible, but that's partly due to the technological uh, wonders that are at our fingertips, which really don't have much to do with me either. And I'm very cognizant of the fact that I've been influenced by the great thinkers that I've had the privilege to read. Mm. Um, and I have friends and family who are watching what I'm doing all the time and, and helping me. And then I also don't probably don't really have the temperament for rampant egotism. You know, I tend towards the depressive end of the spectrum. And so, yeah, that's um, your superpower. Maybe yeah, that's your check. I suppose, <laughs> you know, I, I wonder like, and at, look, you've studied all these people. You studied these people with mass influence, uh, ideologues, you studied these leaders, right? And, as you've become a leader, do you have like a new empathy for what they went through? Do, do, do you look at some of these like philosophers and you look at some of the things that they were talking about and like you didn't understand it before you had the influence and the responsibility and now you're like, oh shit, okay. Well, I think I have a new empathy for celebrities. I understand a lot more clearly what it's like to live in, in, in the public eye. So, and, and to see the upside and the downside of that. I mean, it really produces a radical transformation in your life. And it, it's hard to, it's hard to grasp 
completely. I mean, you've become very popular. How, how long has it been now for you? Um, at this, at this level, maybe the last, like what, two, three years, something like that. Maybe at this level, the last two, three years, I had a little fame earlier in that, my career, then it kind of went away. And then when it came back, I was more kind of like ready and understood what it was going to be. I felt more comfortable in my own skin. Initially, I thought that I had to like, um, prove I was funny to every stranger I met on the street. Uh, I had to like justify where I was. And then right, when, it, when right. it, you know what I mean? Like it went away. And then when it came back, I was like, oh yeah, I, I don't have to do that. I know, I know what I am. I know who I am. And if I have an interaction with someone and it's genuine on the street, that's not going to change their opinion of me. And if it is, who cares? But uh, at first, yes, it was, there was that like almost imposter syndrome. I, I must right. be this person they think I am. Right. Well, it's also, it also play, wreaks some havoc with, with who you think you are, because yeah. part of who you think you are is a consequence of how you're reflected in the eyes it, of others. And, it, yeah. you know, people say, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't base what you think of yourself on what other people think of you. And of yeah. course, that's complete nonsense, because the only person who doesn't base their own concept on what other people think is a psychopath, yeah. right? Yeah. You have to be sensitive to public opinion, which doesn't mean that you should be nothing nothing but a creature of public opinion right but when you're a public figure let's say and you are reflected continually in the public then it does tend to wreak havoc with your own conception of yourself and that's certainly the situation that i find myself in because while i'm not working at the university anymore i'm on extended leave and i don't have my clinical practice so those were two primary sources of my let's say professional identity mm. and now i'm constantly beset with the question of exactly who I am. And I can't tell because I'm reflected all sorts of ways publicly. And it isn't obvious which of those I should be paying attention to. And so I try to pay attention to as many of them as I can, but it's very confusing because there's a, you might say there's a very wide range of opinions about me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you got a broad, a broad spectrum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's somewhat daunting. And so I have some sympathy for celebrities who, who are now exposed in a radical way to the public. I'm in a strange position, though I would say in some sense, even compared to most celebrities, because movie stars, for example, they're famous for the parts they play, hmm. right? But I'm famous because uh, I'm not famous for playing a role. I wasn't an actor. And so that makes things, I, I think, somewhat well, it's different. Whether it's more complicated or not, I can't be sure, but it's I think definitely that's, different. I think that's, in a lot of ways, better. I always thought it was really difficult being like Ross from Friends because they don't like you. They like Ross right. from Friends. And like dealing with that every single day when they interact with you, they want you to be Ross. You better be goofy and say things that are self-deprecating. Uh, like you can't be anybody that's not that character. So this this you went into this business, not you, but as an actor, you go into this business, right? Because you want love. You want the pats on the back. There's a hole that you need filled. And all of a sudden it's kind of filled, but deep down, you know, it's not for you, you know? And I don't know, for me, at least being a stand-up comic, it's rewarding knowing that like what I put out there, I'm the decider of what I put out there. And if they enjoy that, it's like, ah, oh, you kind of, you like this part of my personality that I choose to give to you. That's, that's cool. So what you're putting out has to be a part of you. I don't think you're playing a character, uh, except in your, uh, Red Skull comic book. That was fantastic. But, uh, thank you. Thank yeah, you. yeah, yeah. Great job. Great job. Uh, 
But like you are giving I have to thank your... my makeup artists for that. <laughs> Come on down here to Miami, man. We'll take care of you, little son. But yeah, it's it's I don't know. I feel like you're giving yourself. So the love that you're getting is for who you are. I'd imagine when you get hate for who you are, that's a devastating feeling. I don't know. Is that what you struggle with? Like, do you you think you don't think that you don't think you know who you are? Or are you are you letting the public sway your identity? Oh yes, I would say so. I'm I'm I do what I can to resist it, but it's it's not it's it's a rather irresistible force in some sense. I mean, there's so much. I suppose I could lock myself away from it, but I don't really know how to do that because I'd have to lock myself away from my world fundamentally and then i wouldn't know what to do exactly you know so i mean but, i enjoy the youtube videos i do the interviews that i do i i have to have an active professional life i'm still writing i want to stay engaged with the world as much as i possibly can but that also means simultaneously exposing myself to all the commentary that's associated with what i'm doing and trying to puzzle my way through it but what has changed about you? I mean, I can look back to like interviews and I saw some like really interesting things, like just random excerpts, right? Like where they were asking you or some people were inquiring about you running for a prime minister in Canada. And like your reaction was really specific. You were like, I thought about doing it, but it would take me too long to learn about the power grid. So I can't do it. <laughs> and I was just like, what? <laughs> and I thought it was a really cool answer because most people just go, yeah, I'll run for president and I'll hire some asshole to figure out the fucking power grid. Right. Yeah, well, but maybe that's a better answer, you know, but um, I'm, I'm, it's a very complicated job running a country and I suspect you should prepare for it by knowing some things about how to do it. And, um, you know, that hasn't been my preparation except perhaps on the psychological front. So, and I'm also more interested in, continuing to do what I'm doing, which at least in principle is to provide some useful psychological guidance for as many people as possible and to participate in the constant dialogue about where the culture is heading and why. So I don't know. I just thought that answer was so you, I thought the answer was reflective of your identity. It was like, I'm not the right person for this job. And in order for me to do it, it would take too much time away from the things that I enjoy. So yeah, well, perhaps the things that I'm better at, or that, I mean, I've made that decision continually throughout my life because I've, I've contemplated a political career multiple times, but when, when push came to shove, I always decided to keep doing what I was doing, which was philosophical investigation and scientific investigation, I suppose, as well as my practice as a professor and as a clinician that just seemed the better fit for me temperamentally. Do you feel like, like, do you sometimes feel like you're like a, a seven foot guy with amazing athleticism that can shoot a basketball? Like you're just so good at it that you should do it, but maybe it's not the thing that you want to do. No, I think it's been the thing. I, I think I was fortunate that I got to do the thing that I wanted to do. I mean, I really loved my, my job as a professor and as a clinician, it was extremely rewarding in pretty much every possible way. I love doing the scientific research. And answering questions that way. I liked engaging with my competent colleagues. I liked my graduate students. I really enjoyed teaching undergraduates. I liked my clinical practice and I had a very, very wide range of clients ranging from people who were barely hanging on to the edge of the world to people who were unbelievably competent and accomplished. And so I got to see a huge range of people's lives and, and that was extremely exciting. And I ran a couple of businesses 
more or less on the side or was involved in their running. And so that was all extremely good. I've been exceptionally fortunate in that. And then I've been on a tremendous adventure for the last five years as well. Even though it's yeah. been it's torn me apart in some ways, it certainly hasn't been boring. Yeah. It's been unbelievably exciting. <laughs> yeah. Incredibly too exciting, I would say, <laughs> pretty much all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The curse of an interesting life, I suppose. Yes, yes, so. yes. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just it's really refreshing to hear you say yeah, to hear you say that you struggle with identity. That is that is refreshing because it seems from the outside that you have it figured out. And uh, yeah, I can imagine somebody looking right now going like, oh, man, I don't know what the hell I want to do. Or maybe I do know what I want to do, but I don't know who I am. And I'm being swayed and pulled in all these different directions. And then to hear someone that they really admire and look up to is also feeling those things is very refreshing, man. I, I don't know. I, yeah, it's kind of like I think it's even ballsy to say. I think a lot of people well, in your position would be like, no, I got it. Keep buying the books. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I'm st still trying to figure it out. And maybe that's what makes the books useful to people, too, is that, I mean, they are my constant attempt not so much to say what I know to be true, you know, and shake my fist at them and say, you better believe this, but to walk through the process of trying to figure something out, which I'm continually doing. So, um you know, there's been a lot of illness in my family as of late, too, and that tends to throw you for a loop. So I think all of us, all of my family is still recovering from that. And so that also puts a knot in the tail of your identity, so to speak. Why is that? Well, because it knocks you out of your routine. I mean, mm. I spent much of 2020 in hospitals and, and 2019 as well. I spent 2019 in the hospital with my daughter and my wife. And then mm. I spent most of, much of 2020 in the hospital with me. Mm. So you know, that knocks you out of your daily routine in a major way. And I mean, all three of us had very, had very serious illnesses. And so, and well, that, 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 that's a blow to the side of your head when that happens, when you think your close, your partner's going to die, for example, that's mm. changes things. So luckily that didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. I think it's, I don't know. I wonder my, I have a buddy of mine named Lil Duval, who's a comedian. He's also a, a mentor, I guess, of mine. I, he just has this amazing understanding of life, has like no formal background in education or anything. He literally has just learned all these things from observation. And uh, he kept, kept saying something to me, and I'm sure it's in a lot of books and stuff like that, but it's something I always like think about. And he goes... Um, he goes, it's all about perspective, man. And he'll like say very few words. He won't like explain much to me. He'll just like say a few words and then just kind of like move on or just like hang up the phone. And, uh, and, uh, and he's like, it's all about perspective, man. And uh, he had uh, a close friend of his, uh, of his die and um, of, of cancer. And they, they knew he had cancer for, I think it was like two years. He was supposed to have like two months and then it ended up going for like two years. And um, he's like, yeah, man, it was a great gift. I go, what are you talking about? Like your friend had cancer. He goes, yeah, but like you oftentimes don't know when someone you love a lot is going to go away. Like we knew and we did everything that we wanted to do those last two years. And for him to look at like the person he loved, like getting cancer as like a gift, it, you could almost look, oh, this guy's crazy. But at the same time, like life happens. He would always say this. He's like, life is going to happen. How you react to life is going to dictate your happiness. And 
I know there's certain things you just cannot be happy about, of course, but at, making it seem like it was a choice was like oddly empowering. And I was always curious mm -hmm. what you would think about about that. Like, how much is it your choice how you react to these things? Well, it's it's always indeterminate. I mean, you know, there's limit situations where things are so intense that your attitude is well. It's very difficult to adjust your attitude if about hunger if you're starving to death. Yeah. You know, I mean, we yeah. can all be pushed <laughs> to the point. We can be pushed past the point. I think all of us where we can control our reactions. Intent if the pain is sufficiently intense. Yeah. If, if the situation is is sufficiently intense, but you know, in in this new book, Beyond Order, the last chapter is be grateful in spite of your suffering. And, and it's, I suppose, a uh, discussion of the possibility of adopting that as a, a goal, a decision to be grateful. And I think that you can make that a decision to some degree. Yeah. And it's a fight worth having because it's better to be grateful than not to be. And maybe that's even somewhat independent of your situation. I know when I was particularly ill and I was bitter because of it, then I was worse off than when I was ill and I wasn't bitter right. because of it. So, and so I did what I could to adjust my proclivity for bitterness because it didn't seem helpful. And so, you know, we do have this scope of decision-making that we're always testing out. You, you never, it's, it, it's a dangerous thing to push too hard because, you know, you don't want to say to someone who's suffering from extraordinarily painful terminal cancer, for example, that if they just adjusted their attitude, everything would be okay. <laughs> Obviously, that's a little bit on the harsh side, let's say. But by the same token, we do have the capacity to change the way we look at things, and and we do the best that we can. I mean, the 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 fundamental ethics, I suppose, that people are are encouraged to adopt have a fair bit to do with decision about what attitude you're going to take. You're going to tell the truth or you're going to lie. Are you going to be grateful or are you going to be bitter? Are you going to try to care for other people as if they're valuable or are you going to always put your immediate gratification first? These are all at some level decisions. Yeah. And they're also articles of faith. You know, people say, well, you should never believe what can't be proved, but lots of things, there's lots of decisions you have to make in the absence of proof. Yeah. So, for example, if I say, well, you should be grateful in spite of your suffering, I'm suggesting that that's, you take that as an article of faith rather than anything that could ever be proved, because I can't really see how it could be proved. Yeah, yeah, it's a decision. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I feel like religion was designed to trick people into being happy. Right. Yeah. Like, well, you never know. That's not such a bad trick, then, is it? Is it's not a bad trick. Like, like, what if what if you and your boys figure out all these like life hacks? They're just little life hacks, and you try to tell people, and they don't seem like they would make sense. You're just going up to be like, look, if you help people out, you're gonna feel better. And the average person is like, man, I'm trying to help me out. Why the hell would I help someone else out? And you're just like, dude, trust me. If you do it, you'll feel better. And most people are operating like maybe a little bit empty. They're just trying to fill their tank a little bit, just trying to fill their tank. So they can't even they can't even put it together in their mind that if they help someone else out, that would fill the tank. They think it would like take some gas away from the tank. And like, what if all these rules, right, or just these very simple life hacks and in order to get people to be happy, they had to say, oh, no, you'll go to heaven, or this is from God. 
What is well, this? Is just man-made life hacks. Well, heaven part is maybe where you end up if you do things right, right? That's the idea. Well, I'm, you have heaven now on earth. You live heaven. You get to enjoy... You get to enjoy your time here if you live like this. That's how I always looked at it. Maybe- well, when you when you live correctly, when the, in the moments that you live according to the dictates of your conscience, when you're doing things right, is there any other time that you feel as good as you do then? Not even close. I mean, drugs. Right. The- yeah. yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> that's the. That's the. But only, only for a short time. Exactly. Yeah. And then you pay the price. <laughs> I the pay the price. There. There's a, I remember I, I, I did a drug called Molly, right? MDMA, whatever, ecstasy. I'm not a big drug guy. I, I would go to this thing called Burning Man, but I, I've never been a big drug guy in my life, right? Drink a little bit, but I, I've never done any like the hard stuff. And, um, but what it does is it gives you this super boost of like, I guess it's serotonin or something like that. And it was for the first time in my life, I felt like way excess feelings of happiness, right? Like my jar, my tank was full and then some. And the enlightening experience I came out of it uh, out of it with was when I had that excess, I didn't want to hold it. I literally was calling friends and going, oh, my God, I love you. You're the best. This, that, the other. That's what I did with my extra. I didn't store it. I didn't put in a fucking bank vault. I did nothing but give it away. And I was like, wow, that's kind of cool that if I can get myself to full, what I'll do without anybody pushing me is try to get other people to full. You know, and that's a hell of a realization. I don't I don't think I'm I'm alone in that. I think a lot of people. I don't think you are either. I think that's how it is. So does that mean that we're inherently good if we can just get too full? Probably. I don't know. I I mean, look, it does seem to me you put your finger on something that's exactly right there, I think, is that. You know, you had intense enough joy so that you wanted to share it. That's what happened. You didn't want to keep it all for yourself. And there is intense joy in making other people happy. Mm. I mean, look, you're a comedian. (laughs) What are you trying to do? You're trying to make other people happy. That's your goal. Why is that so rewarding? I mean, partly it's because there's there's, there's a recognition by the crowd of your of your value, you're 100%. witty, you're sharp, you're creative, you know, and that's that's reassuring and flattering, but but that isn't that isn't the essence of it. The essence of it has to be that that you're there to serve the audience. You're paying attention to the audience. You want their you want their approval. Yes, but not in a false way. You actually want to be funny. You want to provide something of value. Yep. And if that's genuine, they're going to see that in you, mm-hmm. especially if you work hard at it. Mm-hmm. And then that is rewarding. Yes. Yes. 100%. Approval, but on my terms, right? It's like I, I won't go for the easiest thing to get approval. I often choose the hardest thing. And that is my own little, like, um, for lack of a better word, like intellectual uh, stimulation that I get from And the, the ha- hardest thing in what way? Uh, like I would prefer the topic that is the least funny. Ah, so you set a challenge in your path. Yes. Now I know the audience might not, maybe subconsciously they appreciate it. The audience might not know, uh, on a conscious level, but for me, that's the challenge. You know, it's, it's like, um, I saw Jack White did a, it was from the white stripes, Jack White. I got that right. right Yeah. yeah. My memory has some holes in it. So, and in any case, I saw a documentary he made and, 
he talked about the way he set up his stage. And first of all, he had this old guitar, like it was just beat to death and it didn't stay in tune. So he had to tune it up all the time while he was playing or it would go out of tune. Right. And then he would put instruments in places that were difficult to get at on the stage. And he did all that, at least in part, because it kept him sharp while he was performing. He had yeah. to pay attention, intense attention to what was going on. Yeah. And that heightened his, that heightened, what, what, what would it say? Because he had to pay so much attention, it heightened his creative ability. Yeah, his awareness. And, and was the intensity focused. of the performance. It sounds like you're doing something that's quite similar. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I, I almost look at it weirdly, like, you know, you know, diving in the Olympics. You know how, like, you not only get judged on how clean the dive was, but also the level of difficulty of the dive. Like, right. Everybody can just dive straight into the pool. But like if you want to do a few backflips and then dive into the pool clean, you know, you're going to raise the stakes. And then the, the comedians that I've always looked up to um, and weirdly enough, someone who I think has a lot of a lot in common with you. There's a, my favorite ever is Patrice O'Neill. Right. And uh, the thing about Patrice is like almost to a fault. He lived his truth. So when I'm reading your stuff about like telling the truth and like the most adventurous thing you can do is is tell the truth. Right? What do you think about that idea? It's fucking great. I love Why? it. Why? Because I've been really thinking about that again lately. I put a little Instagram clip out from a, from a podcast with Chris Williamson. Yeah. And I said, you know, if because I've been thinking all these political movements, yeah. you know, Black Lives Matter and Antifa and the, and the right wing identity politics, white, white supremacist types, um, they're all offering this kind of romantic adventure, right? You can, you can join this revolutionary group and yeah. take yourself out of your mundane day-to-day -day existence. And yeah. There's a real attraction in that. And it's very difficult for mainstream political ideas to compete with that because people need an adventure, especially young people. You need an adventure, man. That's your life. But I do believe that there isn't any more intense adventure than saying what you believe to be true. Because you just don't know, because you have to let go of what's going to happen and you don't know what's going to happen. And, and, and what and, you I said, mean, it's true. I don't know if I would recommend it, but no, it, it's, it's certainly not dull. It's not dull and, and it's not realistic. I think in a lot of ways, like Patrice sabotaged himself. Uh, there's a comic named Jim Norton that said it brilliantly. Like he lived his life as if he was going to have to watch a movie of it with his three best friends afterwards. Like they were going to be there and call him out on every fraudulent thing that he did. Right. So instead he told the truth. So when he watched the movie with all them, he could be like, no, nah, that was me. I really felt that way about that person in that time. Right. And, but the problem with, obviously there are certain problems with telling the truth all the time. Like sometimes the things that we feel are not acceptable. Right. We might feel something that's not publicly acceptable. And I think that your workaround for that was, well, you don't have to say it out loud. You don't have to say out loud everything you feel. But if somebody's asking you something. Like what if my friend is like, hey, how was my set? This is a person I love, a person I want to do better at comedy. Do I tell them that it sucked? That will be the best thing for them. Maybe maybe they'll work harder on the jokes. Maybe they'll get better. You know, like. Do I, have, do I have a sit down with my mom and do I tell her that she's annoying me when she's calling and asking for help? I feel guilty that it's annoying. That's on me. So it's like, well, but you can have that conversation too, right? You can yeah. say, this is a good way of having a conversation with someone you love. It's like, it turns out that there's something you're doing that's bothering me. 
But that might be because I'm stupid. Yeah. So you're either annoying or, or I'm, I'm stupid. stupid. Let's figure it out. Because if you're annoying, I want you to stop because I don't want to be annoyed with you. But if I'm stupid, yeah. then you should tell me because I don't want to be stupid. Uh, and, and that's like, you can, you can tell the truth without claiming omnipotence. You know, it's not that you're right. It's just that that's what you think. And so, and, but you, you do want to be corrected if you have any sense, because why would you want to lug your stupidity forward? Yes. Apart from the fact that it's painful to confront. I mean, and it is, Yeah. but it's not as painful as lugging it forward. So then yeah. you're stupid forever. <laughs> that's not, that's not advisable, you know, unless you think that's an advantage, but you know, stupid is disadvantage is disadvantageous by definition. Yeah. Right. So we call stupid persisting at something that's disadvantageous without learning. Right. So with your friend, you know, if, if you have a friend and he's attempting to be a comic and, you know, you have to assess why he's asking you. Yeah. Now, if he's asking you for a pat on the back, then maybe, you know, you're sensitive enough so that you realize that he needs a pat on the back. And then you think about some uh... thing that you could do that would offer him a pat on the back. But if he really wants your opinion about, because, you know, conversation is ambiguous and it isn't yes. always clear what people are asking for. Yes, yes. You he know, might, because yes. maybe your, your, your girlfriend says, do you like this dress? And she really means, do you love me? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. He, when you say, well, it makes you look fat, then she thinks that means you hate her. That's not really sophisticated truth now, is it? You know, it, right. because of the ambiguity. But if your wife, if you go shopping with your wife and she's trying on three dresses and she asks you which one you like. Well, maybe you could tell her because you're going to have to look at it. Maybe you're going to have to be happy taking her out. And, and maybe she needs your opinion. And like, it's tricky. But that, that is true. It's like being able to decipher what that person is truly asking. Right? That is so true. If the person just wants a compliment, then the truth of that moment would be either satisfying that compliment or not. Right? Uh, this is often true, obviously, like with a spouse, girlfriend, but that is that is so true. Yeah, yeah. You can still live in your truth almost within a lie. <laughs> it, it would be a surface level lie, but an under the surface truth because well, that that happens a lot. You know, people yeah. call those white lies. And I would say, like, a white lie is better than a black lie, but it's not as good as the truth. Right. So and I would say, even in situations where you're called on to to manifest a white lie it's still better if you can come up with something that isn't true at one level and false at another you know to keep it true all the way down right sometimes right. you're just not smart enough to whip up an answer like that on the fly though yeah <laughs> so and that is we you know that is a situation where you're being asked two conflicting things at the same time yes it's not necessarily easy to, to do that correctly but this, yeah but i well but i still hold to our previous discussion that it's an adventure to tell the truth. Now you agreed with that very rapidly. It made you I laugh like, too. Like why, why did that strike you? Because I think, and maybe this is a comedic thing for me. I, people oftentimes go like jokes are, jokes are wrong or jokes are right or blah, blah, blah. Or jokes are speak about the truth. Jokes aren't truthful, right? We lie all the time. Like how often is the misdirect something that completely didn't happen, right? Like the whole point of the joke is the lie. I think Seinfeld actually said that really well. But the feeling within the joke is true. And the problem is a lot of us don't want to acknowledge the feelings that we have. And I think one of the reasons why 
you've had... Well, that's what chapter three and Beyond Order is yeah, about, yeah, right? Yeah, Don't yeah. hide things in the fog. And it's definitely the case that yeah. what comedians do often is point to something and say, look, we have that hidden in the fog and here's what it is. And everyone laughs. It's like, yeah, that's really what it is. Yeah. It, so, yeah, that happens a lot. So, so, and you use fiction. It's not so much lie, it's fiction, yeah. right? And fiction is, fiction is more than true in mm -hmm. some sense because it's like the, it's like the average of truth Look, a great novel is more realistic than life itself. And because who the hell wants to read a novel about how many times you blinked after you woke up this morning? <laughs> right? If you wrote down every detail, it's just yeah, not yeah, relevant yeah. or interesting. You want to sift through your life and pull out yeah. what's what's importantly true. Yeah. And and fiction pulls out what's importantly true about lots of people's lives and amalgamates it together into one story. Yes. So it's hyper true. It's it's what's more than true. And that's why it's so useful. And when you use fiction on stage, when you use fiction yeah. in a performance, you're doing the same thing. You're, yes. you're drawing on this ability. So for example, when a little kid plays dad, when he's playing house, you say, well, he's imitating his father, but that's not right. Because if you watch the child, he doesn't do exactly what he saw his father do that day. What he does instead is he watches his father in many, many situations and he gets the gist and then he acts out the gist, just like he, someone who does an imitation. Yeah, he's doing, Comedians he's do this all the time. Yeah, yeah, they do yeah. imitations. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like they do exactly what they saw the person doing. Yeah. They watch them across lots of situations and they act or speak like they would in that situation. And so it's true, but it isn't an accurate representation of something that actually happened. Yes. So it's a very funny form of truth. That doesn't yeah. make it trivial. It, it, it's, a, it's more true. And, and I think oftentimes when you're dealing with things that, uh, these feelings that are more true, right? Let's just talk about these, like these, these feelings itself. A lot of times now, especially with like the, you know, the political landscape, it is terrifying for the average person, right? To express a feeling that might be high stakes. And I think this is one of the reasons why you became so uh addictive for lack of a better word and there are other people that are in your same vein where it's like you created these very safe structures to express a feeling that we all had right the average person might come out and they might say i, I don't need know an example but uh, uh i don't think the sky is blue right you would have a nuanced specific way of saying that the sky is blue I'm probably being confusing here, but you would have a nuanced specific way of saying it where they wouldn't have to feel like if they went to work the next day, everybody would judge them. I don't think a lot of people have these feelings. The average person, I'm not talking about the extremists, but the average person has a feeling and it doesn't make them a bad person. But today, depending on what you say, you could be looked that way. And the nuanced will think be, will be almost certainly hundred percent. And so the mm. nuanced thinkers blew That's up. That's why it's so deadly that so many comedians are now uncomfortable to perform. Yeah. Yeah. Com comedians are canaries in the coal mine, man. When, when comedians start censoring themselves, you know, something's gone wrong. They're the first, they're the first line. I think they're out there in front of the artists. Mm. That's my sense of popular culture. The first people to go are the comedians mm. because they, they're the ones that take well, they take risk with speech. That's part of it. And mm. it's, it's, there has to be a spontaneity and a daring. So they're always testing the limits of what's acceptable in speech. And they're almost always doing it in a way that points to uncomfortable truths of mm. one form or another. Things that people won't admit, things that we keep hidden in the dark, um, the foibles of our leaders. 
you know, anything that, that's there but makes people too uncomfortable to talk about, that's exactly what a comedian hones in on. Institutions, right? We make mm. fun of the institutions. And I think when comedy is best is, is when those institutions are a little bit oppressive. I think the best comics come from those times. Like, all these comics get upset about, like, what's happening right now. I'm like, you should be salivating. This is our time. This is when we push back. This is where it's fun, baby. Right. Well, what would you do without some oppression? Yes. You need it. We need depression so we don't become sociopaths. We need oppression so we could be great comedians. Like, this, when, when you could say whatever you want, comedy gets weird. You know, you know those times where, like, comedy's all, like, quirky? Like, I'm going to have a fucking clown nose, and I'm going to be, like, super absurdist. Like, it just means nothing. The second you tell us we can't say something, you get the Carlins. You get the Priors. You get the Chris Rocks. You get the Chappelles. You know, it, to me, I think this you should be so excited if you're a comedian. I also think if you're an intellectual, an academic, this is the time. Hey, I don't know how to say how I feel. What? There's a really smart person that's taken a large part of his life to learning how to say things so that they're digestible? I'm interested in that guy. See, that's so it's so interesting that you bring that up too, because one of the comments that people do make to me quite frequently is that they've provided them with ways of saying things they knew to be true but didn't know how to formulate. And that's a privilege, right? And that is, I do believe that is the proper role of um, an articulate intellectual. Yes. And what else would be the role? except to say the things that need to be said that people want to say but can't. I mean, hopefully education helps you do that. I was speaking with one of Canada's finest journalists the other day, a man named Rex Murphy, who's a real character. I mean, he's, 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 uh, he's like a movie character. He's so eccentric and, and, and extreme and, and interesting. He's like someone you'd write into a movie. And he went to do an English literature degree at Memorial University in Newfoundland. And he memorized a lot of poetry and, and plays, Shakespearean plays particularly, but, but great works. And, and he could recite them at will. I was trying to get him to do a bunch of recitation, but he was too uh, shy, I, I guess, too reserved to do it. But I wanted to hear him do it. Right. I heard Russell Brand do it on a podcast we did. He recited some Shakespeare. It was just deadly. He just nailed it. It was yeah. so impressive. But Murphy said that absorbing all that Poetry and learning it by heart gave him words. It, he could feel the spirit of the poetry within him as a consequence of doing all that memorization. And it made him brilliant with his words. And he is brilliant with his words, which is mm. why, he, why he's one of Canada's foremost journalists and has right. been for like 50 years. And so he was able, by relying on the words of the past, by respecting them, by worshiping them, essentially, by becoming extremely educated in this verbal tradition, he was able to give words to the feelings that everyone has. And, and that's partly what made him so popular and so useful. It's the advantage of education. And it's, and it's really the, people are always doubtful about the values of a humanities education, let's say, especially, mm. let's specifically concentrate on English literature. Yeah. Well, why bother? It's like, well, do you want to know how to talk or not? Yeah. <laughs> and because yeah. and how is that different than thinking? Try to get laid in another language. It's hard, <laughs> right? I lived well, for in some people, that's probably an advantage. Uh, you might be right. But I'm just saying, like, I, I lived in Barcelona. I learned that Spanish fast, boy. I learned it real fast because it's life or death out there. I'm competing with, not only are they Spanish, they know how to talk to women, but, like, I'm, 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 I have nothing. So you learn to create those tools. We had a guy named Jim Quick on here. He said, uh, uh, competence is confidence. And I thought it was really cool. 
the more competent you are at something, the more confident you, you, you are speaking about it. You know, if, if, we, if you and I are going to sit here and like wax poetic on, on like philosophers, I'm not going to be nearly as confident. I'm going to ask a lot of questions. I'm going to, I'm going to be really curious, but I'm, I don't have that deep like vocabulary or deep understanding about Sartre, you know, but if we want to talk about comedy, you might be insecure. It might be out of your depths, you know, so and understand why people aren't better at making this case for education. I mean, I talked to Jocko Willink recently too, and, and he's, uh, you know, do you know of Jocko? Of course, the black and white okay, Instagram. Okay. Love okay. it. And most people, he, he's a military type, uh, uh, yeah. a former Navy SEAL, a yeah. tough, tough guy. Like Wakes up early. Way, man. What's that? Wakes up early. Yeah, and, right. And, and wants you to know and about harasses it. Harasses people yeah. for not doing it yeah, in, a, in a friendly way. And, you know, he also went on a very inspired rant about the utility of his English literature degree because it made him so formidable in communication within yeah. the military structure. It's like, yeah. I can't understand how that idea has been forgotten or why it isn't being transmitted properly. It's like there's nothing you can possibly do to become more deadly than to improve your facility with language and the way you do that is by reading especially great things and by writing and by thinking and by speaking for that matter but how how could that not be viewed as absolutely central to what education is about you want to be inarticulate and stumble over everything that you try to think and communicate <laughs> yeah how are you going to get anywhere? You don't even know who you are under those circumstances. You're yeah. this massive feeling that's expressing itself, you know, maybe in violence because you can't find the words and yeah. you, you stumble around and bump into things and you're clunky and dull and you're yeah. not witty. You don't sparkle and you're not going to get laid. Yeah. And so not unless someone feels sorry for you, and, <laughs> you know, that's probably not a great yeah. motivation. Yeah. Well, prostitution's legal in New York now, so... There are well, there, ways there's always it. that. Yes. Yes. But 100%. And I, there's pornography, you know, where yeah. you don't have to speak at all. So. I guess, I guess, I wonder if it's like, um, it's too deep. I have, I should tell your, the people who are listening. I have a list on my website of great books. There's like a hundred I, I swear to God, I thought you were about to say, I have a list of great pornography. And <laughs> I... <laughs> go. Go. Go with the I books. I keep up. that list private. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. I have a list of great books on my website, and yeah. I put that there because these are books that had a major impact on me, both as a scientific thinker, but also as a philosophical or psychological thinker. Yeah. And so I'd encourage people, if you want to if you want to develop your capacity to articulate yourself and gain all the advantages that that brings along with it, which are immense in every possible sphere of life, you could go read those books. And you won't come out of that knowing everything, but you'll come out of it knowing a lot more than you did when you went in. And then you're deadly, regardless of what you do. Do you, do you think that um, a liberal arts education or humanities education is too derivative from making money? No. No, 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 no. Not uh, when it's proper. Not at all. Exactly. And the no. evidence suggests that it's not. Look, in the, here's uh, the In the eyes of, of the public. I'm saying in the eyes of the public. It, in yeah, fact, but, but you look, can't. look what rich people do with their kids historically. They send them to get a liberal arts education. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you think it's because they're stupid? Yeah, yeah. That's not why they did that. They know that there isn't anything that makes you more powerful than being literate and articulate. Yeah. And so you might say, well, you didn't get trained in anything specific. And maybe you need to buttress your liberal arts degree with training in something specific. But being able to communicate, especially as you rise up the ranks in any organization, yeah. there isn't anything that serves you better than your ability to communicate. 
I mean, you read to learn, you communicate to negotiate, to plan, to strategize, to encourage other people, to bring them on board, to put, put them on your side. It's like, so if you're, if you have finesse with language, nothing can possibly stand in your way. And that's how it should so be taught true. to young, especially young men, but not only young men, but especially young men. It's like, you want to get somewhere, mm. like learn to speak. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, in its most basic sense. Do you want to get somewhere, learn how to speak? There's a, uh, my, my fiance, when she was younger, her stepfather would, uh, would do this thing with her where she, uh, he would make her go start conversations with people. She was like nine years old or something, like a young kid. But yeah. just go up to people, start conversations, and don't ask yes or no questions. Hmm. I, I cannot tell... She is so much more comfortable around people. Like, I'm pretty comfortable around people. I literally talk to them for a living. Like, I perform in front of groups of people. For someone who doesn't perform, who's not in entertainment, her ability to just walk up to a stranger and her confidence in being able to spark a conversation, right? And I'm not just talking to, like, a guy. Of course, a guy is going to talk to a beautiful girl. It could be a girl. Her or ability. not, because he might be intimidated right into inarticulateness, right? You're right, 100%. And she, that isn't yeah, a word, yeah, yeah, yeah. but <laughs> he might be rendered inarticulate by her beauty. <laughs> and that'd be go. especially the case if he's not confident in his ability to speak. 100%. So it's like, yeah, I wonder how much of that, like, I, I keep trying to, like, as well, I, as I get older. When my kids you know, were little, I had each of them, because I used to go to performances at their school, dramatic performances. And the kids would be up on stage playing out a part at, at some concert. And I'd be like five rows back and I couldn't even hear them. And it just yeah. used to drive me mad. I'd think, <laughs> good God, why couldn't the teacher take that child and like spend 10 minutes getting them to yell out their lines so that people could hear them? Yeah. I took my kids at home and I had them stand up and said, well, you tell me what happened during your day. I want you to talk about your day for five minutes right? Louder, louder, belt it out so I can hear it. Yeah. You know, put your hands down, stand up, deliver the damn lines. You know, we did that a few times and they got it right away. Yeah. And how useful, what a useful skill that is to be able to stand up and at least speak loudly enough so that people can hear you. When you're doing your comedy performances, where do you put your voice? You whisper so no one can hear you. Well, some, I mean, you want people to hear you, obviously, but sometimes you can use low volume to bring people in. Yeah, sure, sure. Right. That's when you're doing it on purpose. Yes, yes, but right. not because You can play with the volume and the delivery. Yes, yes. But yeah, 100%, like, I don't know. I, I think about all this stuff with, like, child rearing as I get older and I'm going to want to start a family. And, like, you know, even the things that I got from my parents to develop confidence, like, I, now that I look back on it, we would just have, we were so, very, so fortunate, like, we had dinner together every single night. And it was literally the stage for me. They would just ask me how my day was and I could go on. And I thought that what I said was valuable. It was probably mm. stupid. Oh, that's definitely a gift, man. That's definitely a gift. And I think your observation about the table as a stage is a really good one. A tremendous amount of socialization takes place around the table. Yeah. And people learn to communicate or not there because it yeah. is a stage and we share food. It's a very peculiar human trait. It's very deep. Yeah. Yeah, it's just so interesting. Like, I don't know. And you were encouraged, apparently. Yes, they they, they pushed me. And, and, you know, both of them were, were dreamers. So that was maybe a unique situation mm. as well. But but I'm just curious about that, especially now as well, I get What older. did your parents think about your ability? You said you were encouraged. So, you know, my father particularly, but also my mother, but particularly my father, you know, he, he had confidence in me. He yes. was 
he was strict and and he but, had very yeah. high standards, but he also had confidence in me. So I always knew that. As, How did you as know that? To many of my friends who didn't have that. How did you know that he had confidence in you? How did he express that? How did I think probably because he spent a lot of time with me when I was a little kid, mm. helping me like he taught me how to read. He spent a lot of time with me, teaching me things that were useful. Mm. So I knew that he valued my attention, my time. I yep. guess that was a big part of it. And I suppose it was also partly, perhaps partly, the fact that he would be disappointed if I didn't do something well. You know, yeah, which you yeah, think, yeah. well, you don't want to disappoint your father. It's like, well, wait a sec. Maybe you do. Maybe you want to disappoint your father when you do something not so good. I mean, are you going to be pleased if he's pleased when you do something bad? I don't think so. I got I got shitty grades once uh, when I was in like high school. Like, yeah, I was never like an AA student, but I got like bad grades once. I think I got like C's. And I remember my mom looking at the report card and uh, and she was like, oh, that's pretty good. And I was like, what? Right. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean it's pretty good? Like, I need you to come right. down. I'm so pathetic. You need to you need to compliment me on my failure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So maybe that's interesting. So like creating those boundaries for the kid also instills a certain level of confidence because it creates what you believe is an expectation. That's discipline, man. That's what discipline really is. It's like, look, you're trying to bring out the best in your child. Right. Isn't that what you would do if yes. you love them? Yes. And so you're, you have to be disappointed if they're not living up to who they could be. And how are they going to be secure if that doesn't happen? Because they're going to think just what you thought is like, oh, well, I really, you know, was lazing around like a useless bastard. And that's okay. How does that make you feel sick? Everything you do is okay. Yeah. Oh my God. It's like, yeah, yeah. you might as well just hang yourself right then and there. <laughs> If everything you do is okay, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, point? no matter, no matter what you do, no matter how despicable, no matter how underhanded or deceitful, that's okay. It's like, no, it's not. You just, that's, that is not how you make a child feel secure. That's a lie. You're yeah, not it is being truthful. a lie. You're not being truthful. So maybe there's truth. Maybe there's confidence with truth. I have, I have a friend who's a, a, like kind of Quebecois. We don't even know what the fuck this kid is. Like he kind of had an accent when he spoke English, but he like lived in America like his whole life. It was very weird. But he's one of our best friends, Laurent. He says he's from France, but Canada, who the fuck cares? But uh, this guy was so honest with us. And we just assumed it was because he was European. Like, we just grew up in New York. We never heard anybody just be that honest. Like, we'd be, you know, what do you think of the pants? And he'd be like, ah, oh, they just don't fit you. You're too fat for the pants. And we're like, are you, like, are you being serious? You're joking around? Whatever. But I'll tell you something. Whenever that guy says something complimentary, I believe it more. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, the, you know, that's, that's definitely worth thinking about, too. It's like, are we willing to pay the price for our words to be valuable? Now there, you could put that on a t-shirt and print it. Mm. That's a great phrase because the price is you don't want to debase the currency. That's this it. is the problem with every child wins a trophy day. Yes. It's like, you know, if, if everything is valuable, then everything is of equal value. And that equal value is zero because yes. you can't, everything can't be valuable. It isn't possible. Nothing is valuable when everything is valuable. There has to be a differential. There has to be judgment. There has to be hierarchy, all of that, that people are upset about. It's like, wait a minute, do you not want some things to be better than others? Wait a sec, are you sure about that? <laughs> you don't want to be better tomorrow than you are today? Yeah, yeah, and that yeah. means you're, you know, that means you judge yourself. One of the things I learned from Carl Jung, it was so brilliant, that one of the things he, he read, wrote in one of his books, um, it was about Christ coming back in Revelation. He was trying to explain why the book of Revelation was appended onto the end of the Bible, because it's such a strange hallucinogenic trip. And 
It's an extremely bizarre book. In any case, Christ comes back as a judge, and most people are damned, and some are saved. Well, Christ is an ideal. So in the gospel, he's mostly merciful. But an ideal is a judge. Well, why? Well, because you don't live, you haven't lived up to the ideal. Of course, it's a judge. You can't have an ideal without it being a judge. <laughs> yeah. And so then let's say there's the ultimate ideal, right? Yeah. The ultimate, let's imagine there's the ultimate you, you could be. You kind of have glimmerings of that because you know when you're acting that way and you know when you're not. Yeah. So, well, that's also your ultimate judge. And how could it be otherwise? Because every time you're not that, you're going to feel guilty and ashamed. Yes. And you might say, well, I'd like to dispense with all of that because who wants to feel guilty and ashamed? And fair enough, man. But are you going to sacrifice the ideal so that you don't feel guilty and ashamed? Then, then what do you do? Then you have nothing. You just sit there because everything's yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. And I think it's better to love people for who they could be. I think so. It's, it's better to love people for who they could be. In other words, you know, you know the moral shortcomings of your friend, but you are going to love him for who he can be. Well, I mean, when you, look, it's complicated, right? Because you love people and they have their shortcomings and their vulnerabilities, and you have to take that as a package. But look, if you're someone's friend, mm. if you're really someone's friend, I mean, and they betray themselves, you're... You're unhappy with them for doing that because mm. they've sacrificed their better self for their lower self. And mm. if you're a real friend, you don't, you, that doesn't sit well with you. Mm. So I don't know to what degree we love each other because we see the ideal in someone else and are trying to encourage that forward. But I know in my clinical practice, you know, there's a psychologist, Carl Rogers, a famous psychologist, and he, he propounded this theory of unconditional positive regard, that you should have that with your clients, unconditional positive regard. Hmm. And I thought through that a lot. I thought, no, that isn't right. It, I get what he was doing. I am a great admirer of Carl Rogers, and his work taught me a lot. But my sense in therapy was the best in me is serving the best in yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what I'm going to help you do is separate the wheat from the chaff, you know, you and I will both decide what ideal we're pursuing in yeah. relationship to your life. I don't want to impose that on you. It yeah. has to be a consequence of dialogue because I don't know you and you're a particular person and your direction is your particular direction. It can't be mine. That would be wrong. But once we've established your direction and your ideal, then part of what we're doing in dialogue is to separate out what is unworthy of that in you. And mm. I, I, I can't see how you can't how you don't do that with your friends and with the people that you love. You have to, and but it's hard because you love them and you know that the things you say could hurt them. And the last thing you want to do is hurt the people you love. And so sometimes you put a Band-Aid on these cuts with like a, a baby lie and it's selfish. If you really wanted to help that person, you would tell them the fucking truth. You deal with that discomfort. They would deal with the discomfort and then they'd get better and then you guys would be better. Yeah, or you get or you get sophisticated enough in your in your ability to do that so that you you can serve both the masters we talked about at the same yeah. time. You can tell the truth, but you don't do it in a way that's damaging. The, yeah. And I mean that, that's yeah. hard. Let's let's not make any mistake about it. It's this is very, very difficult. That's but a tight rope. I do yeah. think like I thought a lot about friendship and about about you know. If something good happens to you and you have a friend, you can go tell them and they're happy for you. And that's because they want things to be better for you, right? Yeah. They're not jealous. They're not upset about it. Yeah. And, and I do think that we see, we see the, 
we see the ideal in people that we love and we try to call that forward. I believe that to be the case. I think that's right. Yeah. I, now you got me thinking about like friends and I'm trying to understand like when I know that I really like love somebody as a friend and, uh, there's like a weird protective instinct that kicks in where I have this like this not vision, but like, you know, when you have this like imaginary play that's going on in your head, this scenario has never worked out. Oftentimes it happens, you know, after an act, right? Like what, what I would have said to that guy who embarrassed me or something like that. But like I'll have this little play in my head where somebody does something to that person that I love and then I inflict some sort of pain on that person to to demonstrate to the person I love that nobody can do anything to them without me doing something and I'm looking at this I'm like it's kind of like barbaric that I gotta like beat somebody up to prove that I love somebody but I wonder if that's like instilled in our DNA it's like the people that become part of our tribe we want them to know that they're safe that they're protected and that that safety and that protection is no, I think that all that's look I think that's that's part of that's part of the hero myth, as far as I'm concerned, is to protect your territory against the barbarian interloper, right? Yeah. The evil barbarian interloper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is something about that that could go terribly wrong, obviously, but there is something that's noble and heroic about it. A lot of that, that instinct has to be transmuted up into the religious domain, I think, essentially. So what, what does that mean? You well, because you do want to protect the people that you love, but it isn't precisely that you want to protect them against the bad person who might come along. It's that you want to protect them from malevolence itself, right? It has to be abstracted <laughs> yeah. upward. You can't beat and up an idea or a feeling. You can beat up a bad guy, right? But you can't beat up bad behavior that they're doing. Well, so, so, you, so you, know, you, you play out the fantasy in a concrete way, but, but there's something in it that can be elevated. Yeah. So if you're trying to make a child confident and competent, then you are in fact helping them fend off malevolent incursions against them, yes, right? And so yes. that is what you're doing. Yeah. But you can do it in a manner that's that's sophisticated. L let me give you an example. I, maybe this will work. I was reminded recently of this documentary I watched called Hitman Heart, which is a great documentary, Hitman Heart. It's about pro wrestling. Brett the Hitman Heart, yeah. That's right, that's yeah. right. And he's the good guy, and he was the good guy in pro wrestling. And yeah. so, and he was very, very famous. He was the most famous Canadian of his time, as yeah. it turned out. And he had this role thrust upon him. He was the good guy, right? Yeah. And watching the documentary, I realized that people watch pro wrestling because it was a battle in a coliseum between the forces of good of and the course. forces of evil. Of and course. I didn't yeah. understand that. I yeah, didn't yeah, yeah. know it was a drama for people who didn't want to go to movies. Like yeah. it was one <laughs> level of fiction below movies. I'm yeah. not being smart about this. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not being cynical about this. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that it was a mythological drama yeah. and Hitman Hart got cast as you know, this, the hero, the, the savior, essentially. Yeah. And that was very weighty for him because that's what people expected from him. Yeah. But in any case, there was a sophisticated psychological drama that was being played out in the wrestling or in the wrestling ring, and it was good against evil. And that fantasy that you have of protecting the people you love against malevolent and malicious intruders is the fantasy of good against evil. Yeah, it's just yeah. concretized. Yeah, yeah. And so you have, you see, like in our religious doctrines, and in, 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 at the core of religious doctrine, much religious doctrine is the idea that the entire world is a stage for the battle between good and evil. And that's right. 
It's yeah. right. We know it's right. You know that's happening in your own conscience because you torture yourself when you do things that you shouldn't do. Yeah. You want to see yourself on the side of the good. You want to be on the side of the good insofar as you're motivated by, by the proper and appropriate intentions. Yeah, yeah. And you'll, so you'll see that in a fantasy. And it is part of friendship to defend and guard, but you want to make that sophisticated enough so you don't get the bad guy wrong. Because sometimes the bad guy you're saying is not uh, a person. So, well, sometimes the bad guy is you. Sometimes, yeah. like, it's better, and, and this is something I've tried to stress in my writings, is yeah. the, the forces of good and evil are inside. Yeah. They're best conceptualized psychologically. It's, yeah. the, it's the most appropriate way to conceptualize them. Yeah. Get yourself under control, right? Yeah. Quell the devil in your own soul. Yeah. It's the best thing you can do for your friends, because otherwise it get, risks getting acted out at a much more concrete level, and then it becomes dangerous. You know, it's the, the, the protesters who were shaking their fists all the time. They've yeah. identified evil outside. Yes. And that's what they're fighting. And, you know, you can understand that motivation. Yeah. But the problem for me is, like, what makes you so sure that the evil is where you think it is? It's not, it's so convenient for you that it's outside. Well, I don't think it's outside. I don't want to misquote you, but uh, you said something about um, there is no, uh, there is a, I don't know, there is a, there is no limit to what human beings will do in the pursuit of good. There's no limit to the evil human beings will do in the pursuit of good, something like that. Well, it, it, the, you, the idea of utopia, you imagine that sort of revolutionary utopia. Yeah, how many the people utopia yeah. that the revolution is going to bring. It's like, yeah, yeah. well, it's so good yeah. that anything I do to bring it it's about is it. justifiable. Yes, yes, yes. Jesus, you've just been handed a blank moral card. You yeah. can get away with bloody murder because, after all, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Right, right. So you, away yeah. we go, breaking eggs. It's like, well, it better, it better be one hell of an omelet. Yeah. Yeah, I just, even then, it's not clear it's justifiable. I, Look, I, in sophisticated I, literature, you know, in unsophisticated literature, there's evil people and there's good people, and they have a battle. Right. In sophisticated literature, the good and evil are within the characters. That that's the the thing about um, uh, to make it very unsophisticated. But Marvel, I think, what they get so well about their villains is that they make their is they make their their goal somewhat relatable. You know, like there's this Thanos character who's like, I want to remove half of life in the universe. And everybody's like, oh, my God, you're a piece of shit. That's horrible. And then he's like, no, I saw what happened on my planet and there was no more resources and the people just killed each other and it was absolutely horrible. So if I just remove half of life and rich people, poor people, everybody gets taken out in the same way, then there'll be plenty of food. There'll be plenty of resources for everybody and everybody will live happily ever after. And all of a sudden you're like, OK, he's a psychopath, but he has good intentions with his psychopathy, you know, so now you relate to this fucking villain in a weird way. And I guess what I'm saying is, yes, that is that is the the more sophisticated storytelling that I really like. I want to relate to the villain. I want to look at the well, Joker. It's a, it, it, yes, of course, because you want to grapple with those sorts of forces inside yourself, too. And you want to see yeah, where I'm your not good a motivations hero. might take. What's that? I'm not a hero. I always will relate to the villain more because I'm not Captain fucking America. You know, I, I'm battling. I imagine we probably relate to the villain if it's a sophisticated villain way more than the hero because the hero does isn't really dynamic. He's not really battling a lot in a lot of these like superhero movies. Like Superman, the fuck does he have to deal with? The fact that he's yeah. faking that power. It's a big like, problem with Superman, right? I mean, he got to the point where because he could do everything, there was nothing to do. Yeah, there's the, no story. Boring. Give me a regular guy that's going through some shit. 
Yeah, well, that is what Marvel did when they burst onto the scene in the early '60s, right? They made their, they also made the heroes more complex and 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 more multidimensional in their motivations. And that simple thing, I guess, made them blow DC out of the water or something. It's just, it's so interesting how we just get drawn into these stories, man. I I, I, I even look at like directors. Well, I don't the know. whole Marvel universe is. I mean, it's un, You know, in my last book. In Beyond Order, I talked a fair bit about Harry Potter, and yeah. a lot of the people who like to take pot shots at me took pot shots at that because, you know, I don't know, they think Harry Potter's beneath their notice or something. But, you know, I kind of noticed that J.K. Rowling made several billion dollars building the biggest <laughs> entertainment enterprise of the decade and rose herself from, you know, single mother status, yeah. unemployed single mother status to richer than the queen, and then occupied every movie screen for like 10 years. Yeah. Maybe something's going on there. Yeah. Well, these complex characters, they play out mythology, you know, and if, so if religion disappears in the culture in general, it pops up in our stories instantly. And that's exactly what's happened in the Marvel universe. And, and what happened? I mean, you, you even have Thor, for God's sake. Thor is a god. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not even it's not even subtle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can't get rid of these stories. They, they come back no matter what you do. These stories come back. So what was so, what was J.K. Rowling doing with the with Harry Potter? Well, it's the battle between good and evil. I mean, right. Voldemort is Satan for all intents and purposes. Yeah. So it's 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 the battle between good and evil. I mean, the second volume in particular is St. George and the Dragon. It's Bilbo and the Dragon. Yeah. Harry fights a giant snake that's under the castle. It's the same story as the Lord of the Rings. And that's the same story as, as um, what's the original story? Hobbit? Yeah, but far before that, uh, well, it, it, the oldest story we have of that sort is a Mesopotamian creation myth where a god named Marduk attacks a giant dragon named Tiamat. And that's one of the oldest religious tracts that we have. It's symbolic of humanity, right? The human being goes out there and encounters the terrible unknown, often in reptilian form. And that terrible unknown, well, that's why that terrible unknown is often evil itself. And so in Christianity, you get this weird intermingling, for example, of the snake in the Garden of Eden with Satan. It's not obvious why there should be a connection. Yeah, yeah. Snake, yeah. Satan. Yeah. It's like, well, what's the worst snake? Yeah. It's not a snake. It's snakes as such. Well, it's not snakes as such. It's predators as such. Reptilian predators. Wait a minute. It's not reptilian predators as such. It's enemies. It's human enemies. It's the enemy in our own soul. That's the progression of the thought. Wait, it's unbelievably how, sophisticated. How does it's it go from insanely sophisticated? How does it go from enemies to the enemies in our in our own soul? Well, well, who's your worst enemy if it's not you? Who's your biggest obstacle if it's not you? And I mean, who do you contend with more than anyone else if it's not you? And to the Harry Potter thing, Harry Potter has a piece of Voldemort in him. Yes, well, yeah. that's that's the original sin doctrine recreated. So it's that... also the case that he can't understand evil without it. It's also part of what makes him sophisticated, right? Because yes, he's been touched by it. Yeah. So is that what we got to do? Is just copy the Bible? Like uh, we don't have a choice. Wait, what do you mean by that? It happens whether we want it to or not. I mean, the Bible aggregated itself over centuries, right? I mean, no human being directly oriented that it, it it's not something that could happen over thousands and thousands of years this is just the greatest hits that's one way of thinking about it yes and each one of these hits taps into something innate to us yes otherwise we wouldn't remember it we wouldn't have 
we wouldn't have conserved it. It wouldn't stick in our memory. It wouldn't structure the way we think. And the fact that it taps into something innate, that doesn't necessarily mean each... Does it mean that each story is valuable? Like, you can tap into fear, you can tap into joy. Like, there's different things to tap into. I'm just trying to discern, like... Like, literally, as you said that, I'm like, I gotta start reading whatever stories in the Bible said, you know, talk about raising kids. You know, because I'm fucking... I'm terrified of fucking this up, man. Like, I know how much I'm gonna love this kid. I love my dog. The dog gets on the bed. I don't want to tell the dog to get off the bed, even though I have to, so he learns not to get on the bed. Yes, and well, and you don't want to be annoyed at your dog. You want to like your dog. That's a really good rule for kids. That's one that I laid out in the first book. Don't What's, let yeah, your don't kids let do your anything kid that make you dislike them. Yeah. Like, you want to dislike your kids? Because you will. If they don't behave well, you will dislike them, and then you'll take it out on them. And then and you be... might think, oh, no, I wouldn't do that. It's like, yes, you would. Oh, yeah. For sure you would. And then they'll be insecure because they'll be like, my father or mother doesn't like me. And yeah, you definitely. let your kid be fucking unlikable. That's no, I can you. tell you what happens. I've seen it many times in, in my personal life, in my clinical practice. So let's say you have a three-year-old okay. and they're acting out. They're pushing you because they will, because they want to find out where the limits are. Yeah. So they'll push us because they want to know where the limits are. They will yes. push you, man. Yes. So you let them push and push and you're annoyed as hell. But you won't admit it because you're such a good guy and you don't get annoyed at your children and you always love them no matter what they do and yeah, yeah. all of that. So, you know, your child is annoyed the hell out of you and so now you're annoyed. And so then he goes away and maybe he goes and makes a picture and maybe he's learned how to draw a person that day or something that really, really indicates a step forward. And he's forgotten all about annoying you and he comes trotting out with this picture to show you. And what he's hoping is that you'll point to the picture and you'll say, oh, look, you know, yesterday you drew a, a man, but you didn't get his legs on right and you didn't get his arms on right, but this time you got them right and you've really made progress. And so you, you're paying discriminating attention and you're encouraging development. But no, you don't do that because you're annoyed. You just say, oh, well, I'm, go away, I'm watching TV. And so that's how you get your bloody revenge. And if you don't think you'll do that, that's just because you don't know anything about human beings. Yeah. Of course you'll do that. And so you want now, you know, you think, well, you're an idiot. So maybe the kid's annoying you because you're stupid. That's highly probable. So maybe that's why it's useful to have a wife around because she can help <laughs> point out where you're stupid and maybe you won't be so stupid then. <laughs> well, right. Because you're going to do this on your own. No, you're right. And my, my fiance always says, she's like, you're going to make me discipline the kids. I already know. It. I, I know you're going to be a pushover dad and I'm going to be the one. It's happening with the dog, you know? She's got the electric zap collar for the thing. I can't even touch that thing. I just want to pet it. I want to give it a little treats, totally undermine everything that she's done. And I feel like that's what I'm going to do with our kids as well. Yeah, well, that you should, I would say you should pay attention to that because you're probably right, you know, because the dog is a good practice. Dog's a good practice. So, you know, so you, you, and if you're an agreeable person, you know, if, and that's a temperamental trait, agreeableness and okay. agreeable people are compassionate and polite, essentially, and, and they care, they don't like conflict, they don't like to hurt other people's feelings, they're not harsh, they're not stubborn, it's highly probable, given the way you just described your interactions with your dog, that you're yep. quite agreeable. But I would still say that you have an ethical responsibility to establish the standards that you want to apply to your children and then uphold them. And you may have to do that in intense dialogue with your fiance because you don't want your household to be set up so she's the bad guy and yeah. has to carry all that weight. Yeah. And she resents me. Of course. And, yeah. and why wouldn't she? 
you know, and your children will get the wrong idea too. And besides, they'll manipulate the hell out of you because, you know, they'll see you as the pushover and then they won't have any respect for their father. And, you know, and then they don't have any respect for masculinity because you're the representative of masculinity. And that's not good. You want it to be as close to 50-50 as you can manage. When did masculinity become something bad? As I sit here with ripped jeans and my legs crossed. <laughs> uh, maybe when we all, when all us men decided that we would accept that characterization of it. I never accepted it. I mean, like, I, I don't know. I remember growing up, right? And I think I saw it like play out in movies. Like I remember growing up and I remember seeing like TV too. TV. It went from my three sons and father knows best to, um, dude, well, to, to what are the, the to every father being a buffoon? Yeah. So I'm I'm literally watching movies and I'm like, okay, Bruce Willis is saving the day, right? And then like '90s, Bruce Willis is still saving the day. And then it's 2000s. I'm like, do we have nobody new here? Is Bruce Willis still the only fucking man left saving the goddamn day? Like, did you, we just ran out of young. Uh, I guess masculine men that were going to be the heroes. And then all of a sudden, like these like Michael Sarah types, he could be a sweet guy, but he's playing like this imp guy, you know, who's just being like walked around on a leash by his girl and every yeah, movie. Good got to be good. Got to be synonymous with harmless. I, 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 but I don't understand it because I don't think that like, I don't think that you can make that a trend. I can't speak on behalf of chicks, but I don't think that you can like make chicks like beta males. I, I don't think that exists, right? Like, don't we like what we like? I, I mean, maybe uh, an outfit can change. Maybe we like certain jeans and other people like skirts. But at the end of the day, I think there's going to be certain char characteristics of the opposite sex that we're going to be drawn to biologically. Well, you know, the, one of the ones you already discussed is competence. Anybody with any sense is going to prefer competence unless they want someone who's emasculated and, and is completely powerless. And because then they don't have to be afraid of them in some sense. I mean, they should be more afraid of them, really. But... You know, when you confuse competence with power, then you punish competence. And maybe then you become attracted to weakness because it's not authoritarian. It doesn't look like tyranny, but it's, it's, that's only because competence and power are confused in your mind. Competence and power. Yeah, there's this thing with power. Yeah, that's for sure. It's, un, you know, there's this claim that all of our institutions are based on power. It's like, no, they're not. Only when they're corrupt is that true. Has anybody that you've studied throughout history managed to obtain a significant amount of power and done the right thing with it? Well, I think most of our institutions that function reasonably well do do that reasonably well or had. You know, I mean, we're all flawed, but there's a huge difference between Joseph Stalin and Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, so I mean if you look look at look at the democratic west all things considered. Yeah. The leadership has been okay, okay to good. Especially compared to absolutely catastrophically horrible, which is the alternative. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is it So when we yeah. we've 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 we don't give our functional institutions the benefit of the doubt. And that doesn't mean they shouldn't be subject to criticism, but the idea that they're predicated on arbitrary power, I, and that's their essential nature, that's appalling. I wasn't being critical of the institutions. I was no, no, I know. I oh, know okay. You yeah, I, I'm just curious about like, I'm just curious about like a human's relationship. Well, you have power. a car. Yeah. Does it work? 
Yeah. How often? Um, currently, every time I use it. So, like, if you use it a thousand times, how many times doesn't it work? Uh, zero out of a thousand. A car, right? You said car. Yeah, a car. Okay, okay, yeah. Okay, well, that institution is doing pretty well. Yeah, because I I'm has not, a ninety-nine point nine percent success rate. I'm not. How mad about at flying? The yeah, have you crashed yet when you flew? I mean, I think you're jinxing me, but no. I, I no, and, and and they're so safe, it's just beyond comprehension. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I'm not uh, I'm not upset at like institutions in that. I'm talking about like a human being that is compelled to power. Like I understand certain people being compelled to greatness. That's really cool. You see it in athletes. And what's right? the difference? What's the difference? I think there is as far a difference. As you're concerned. I think there is a difference because I think like once somebody accesses power, they don't necessarily need to be more great. Right. They'll just do whatever they can to continue to have that power where there are people. Okay, what do they do? This is a good thing to dis differentiate. You made this case. Greatness okay. versus power. OK. OK, let's take it apart. OK. So you just said there's something arbitrary about power. Yeah, I think I think there's something I think there's something about people who desire power instead of greatness. And I think yeah. that power comes with greatness, but if, you're, if your desire is power, I think there is something dangerous there because you're willing to do whatever it is to maintain that power. Whereas it's the great mimicry of greatness. It's the mimicry of greatness. Oh. Greatness deserves power because you want the powerful to be great. You want the great to, to be, be powerful. powerful. Why wouldn't you? Oh, that's why we exalt these people that we believe are great. We want them to have it. They've earned it. Well, who else would you want to lead you? I mean, if they're good at doing something, why wouldn't you put them in the front? Hmm. You want to be led with some by someone who isn't great? I mean, you think of all the all the times we spent as tribal hunters. Who do you put in charge? The best hunter. So or then perhaps the best hunter who's also the most generous. Yeah, exactly. You want the guy that's going to share that that. Yeah, uh, right. That but that would make him a great that's hunter too, right? Great. Because yes. over time, he would have people in his hunting party. You yes. want great. You want productivity and generosity. So how do we greatness? How do we discern between people who are mimicking power, uh, greatness for power and greatness? Uh, that's a great question. By paying careful attention, by listening and by talking about it. That's mm. the purpose of free speech. That's the purpose of political attention. Mm. Because you want the great, but it can be mimicked by, it's mimicked by psychopaths who yeah. use power. But that doesn't mean that power is the basis of our, of our hierarchical human relationships. That's only the case when they've gone badly wrong. Mm. What do you mean by that? I mean, you, well, when a, when a society is corrupt, then the powerful rule. When a society isn't corrupt, then the great have authority. That's not the same thing. And, and confusing those. You asked why, yeah, why yeah. the beta male is now this, is this object of attention. It's yeah. because we've confused great and powerful. And now we're so afraid of power that we're willing to dispense with greatness entirely, or even to question whether it exists. That's the attack on the meritocracy. There's no meritocracy. Oh, there's no greatness. And no one who has a position deserves it. There's no difference in talent. And that doesn't mean our institutions are pure and that everyone with talent is rewarded. Yes. But, but because no institution is pure and no selection method is 100% accurate. But you made this distinction between great, and greatness power. and power. Yes. So pursue it. Okay. How do you know someone's great as far as you're concerned? How do I know someone is great? I have great admiration for the skill. Okay, you admire them. For the skill. Not yeah, well, that's weird. That See, that's an interesting thing because we have this instinct of admiration. It's mm -hmm. like you see someone and you admire them. Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, why? You want to be like them. Yeah. That's imitation, right? That's the instinct of imitation. Yeah. And because we can identify what's great because it would be better to be great than the way we are. So when <laughs> yeah. we see it, we think, oh, man. 
Yeah. I really admire that. And maybe you're mad about that because you're so unlike that and it's judgmental and makes you annoyed. Right. But fundamentally you think I'd like to be like that. So there's one admiration. You admire what's great if you have any sense. Yeah. Okay. And that happens spontaneously, especially in a domain that you value. Yes, exactly. The more I value the domain, the, do the domain, the more, God, I can't speak. The more, um, yeah, the, the more admiration. More admiration. I have. Absolutely. I do not admire power. I don't even care about people who are powerful if they don't have something that I admire, some sort of skill set that I care about. The only thing that's nice is like the ease of power. You can open up doors easier, you know, but I'm way more impressed by like a powerful person that actually has a skill I didn't even know about. Like that to me makes me go, oh, cool. That, oh, maybe that's why he got there. But just holding the position isn't admirable to me in any way at all. Does that make sense? Yes. So I guess I'm trying to think like, why, why is that? Is that a common belief? I imagine we all, I don't think I'm unique in that. Well, so here's something about religious belief. Okay. Yeah. Think about this. So there's an idea, a Christian idea that Christ is the King of Kings. Okay. So here's what this means. You can think about this psychologically for whatever it's worth. Okay. So imagine that you had a, a set of people that you admired. Yeah. Okay. Now imagine that there's something about each of them that's admirable, that's the same, because why else would it be admirable? You said, well, they have particular skill in a particular domain. So there's something, let's say, there's something about skill as such that's mm. admirable. Mm. Okay, now you average across all those admirable people and you come out with one hyper-admirable person. Okay. Okay, that's who you want to be. Well, that's what Christ is in the Western canon. That's what, technically, that's the idea. He's the most admirable person. The most yes, by definition, by definition is what I'm saying. Is yeah. by definition. So imagine, imagine this. Imagine that yeah. the collective imagination of of Western civilization has been working on formulating a picture of the ultimate ideal for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and partly in stories. Yeah, yeah. But also partly in music, partly in literature, partly in architecture. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. It's like, what's the ideal? Yeah. What's the ideal across ideals? Yeah. Because we need to know because that's what we're aiming at. Well, should you worship that? Well, obviously, because what else would you worship? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why would I worship anything less than well, the best? Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And you see, so the, 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 it's very difficult to puzzle these things out because you run into rational problems. It's like, well, did, for example, did Christ really exist? Okay, well, your brain hits that problem and, yeah. and it brings the whole thing to a halt to some degree. Yeah. But that's beside this other point. Sure. It's like, well, look, we're, we're, we're very good at abstracting out the essence of something. That's why we can tell stories. That's why we can mimic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, wouldn't we extract out the essence of greatness? Now, that's hard, right? Because yes. what's the greatest human being? Jesus, there's a hard question, man. Yeah. That's a tough question. Yeah. You know, generosity, mercy, productivity, yeah. truth. Yeah. So, magic. I mean, what's that? Magic. Magic. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. And so, I mean, one of the one of the two two hallmarks that I've seen across images of this sort in my studies are two. One is the ability to pay attention. So someone that's admirable pays attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, they open their eyes and they watch and they see what's in front of them. Yeah. It's not the same as thinking. Yeah, yeah. They'll see what's in front of them. Yeah. Pay attention. And you know, 
there's something about attention that's riveting, right? If you watch someone attend to something, you'll watch what they're watching. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so attention is attention is the ultimate resource, and yeah. to pay attention is to pay the highest um, compliment. Okay. The next is the ability to speak magic words. Well, that's what you do as a comedian. If you're on, huh. you entrance the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear. How what is you're that saying. not magical? They yeah, pay yeah. you to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's magical. Okay, and how do you come up with your jokes? Well, you pay attention, and then you speak magic words. Well, that's <laughs> the essence. Like, if you look at representations, I'm going to stick to Christianity for the time being, but Christ is tightly associated with the word with the spoken word, yeah, yeah. especially the spoken word of truth. Yeah. And that's partly why. It's because underneath this is the idea that, well, there isn't anything more admirable than the capacity to pay attention and to speak magic words. It builds the world. It re renews the world. It creates the world. All of that. I mean, it's true. It's true. I mean, we need to know these things. And so, do you think that there are people that, like, outside of religious figures that crave power and are utilizing the word, if you will, in order to Hitler do Hitler did. Yes. Yeah, but he pathologized it. What do you mean by that? He used his God-given talents for malevolent purposes. Ah, uh, because he didn't care about being great. He cared about being powerful. Well, it seems that way, doesn't it? So his words served power. Okay, so his words served power, and then... These not greatness. Not greatness. And then these people come to power, right? And then I've often seen what happened, like you can even see it now within institutions. Once a person or an institution has power, they attack any greatness that could make that institution or person less powerful. Well, that that's is a especially threat. true if, if the people who acquired the positions aren't great. That, uh, the, greatness is the thing they fear more than anything exactly. because it shows them for the frauds that they are it exposes in them in fact you want to attack, attack the very idea of greatness which yeah. is part of why there's such an assault right now on the idea of meritocracy yes not just not there's not just an attack on the idea that our institutions are meritocratic which yeah, you can yeah. have some sympathy with because no, of course they're not entirely meritocratic yeah. but the idea of yeah. merit per se well let's go after that Really, you want to dispense with merit, do you? Yeah. You really do. You're sure of that. Really. You're sure you want to do that. Think about it. Like, if you thought you were the king of kings, you would never dispense with merit because you know you earned your position. You would only dispense with merit if you're admitting you're not the person that should be there. Well, you'd cert you're certainly not relying on merit as the, as the means to your own accomplishment. That's for sure. Right? Like in the jungle, there's no uh, equality of outcome. What is that? Is that the term? Do you know what I mean? Yes, like equality of outcome. The lions equity. fight and we decide who's the king and that organizes shit very quickly. Well, you know, the other thing too about that's such a tricky thing and it's hard for people to parse apart, you know, but you got to ask yourself too, if you really want equality of outcome, maybe you want maximal difference between people in some sense, because look, the only reason you can trade on your ability as a comedian is because you're actually better at it than other people. Right. Right. So you, the only thing you have to offer that's valid as a trade is something that you're better at. So if, if we insist that everyone has exactly the same of everything, well, then what do we have to offer each other? You know, so yeah. you know, I don't understand that. And I don't understand how that's commensurate with diversity. Yeah, that's interesting. I, 
I've I've kind of like built my career based on that idea that <laughs> the comedy that was on TV wasn't the funniest version. And I literally said, well, if I just put my comedy on YouTube, I think the average person will see that there is more merit here and they'll gravitate towards me. Right. And I think because these institutions were so caught up in like what you can and can't say and all this other stuff and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really matter. But yet the, the Internet. It does matter. It does matter. Exactly. Because you saw it. I said in, in this book, there's a chapter, right? Uh, Notice that opportunity lurks where responsibility has been abdicated. Yes. Well, that's the story you just yeah, told. You exactly, said you yeah. noticed that what was being meritorious wasn't being rewarded. Yeah. Okay, well, that sucks, but it does open up an opportunity for you if 100%. you have some merit at, and then you can test it. So you put your comedy on YouTube. What happened? And then it blows up, man. And it was crazy. And it's like everything that I've gotten from my career has come from the fact that like the people were able to decide it. You know, it, 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 it's, it's quite interesting, like the disruptor that the internet is because mm -hmm. around the same time that you were exploding, I was starting to blow up and there's a bunch of other figures and all of us merit based in our own situations were able to, to come to some sort of like, you know, prominence, obviously different levels, but, uh, because the people decided we should be there. It, like, that's what the internet does. You see it happening. I have a friend of ours uh, named Ben Uyeda, is a really smart guy, but he's like, that's all the internet is. It's the ultimate disruptor, and it will happen to every institution. Wall Street's going through it now with the whole GameStop thing. They're just finding ways to disrupt. The people will band together, and they will disrupt. And there's a tool for the disruption. And it's really cool, at least for, I guess, guys like you and, and your contemporaries, myself and my contemporaries, because we got a fucking chance to fight. You know, we had to ask for permission before. Hey, can you put me on TV? What can I say? I'll try to figure out the best way to say it around, you know, what you guys think is cool. And then when we just did it based on our own accord, we put out the best version of it and then got the most success. It's very, very rewarding. It, it is very rewarding. And it's just really cool to see this happen all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's a, it's it's well, it's a consequence of this immense technological revolution, isn't it? Is mm. that we've got this insane power now. All of us are TV producers. All of us are movie producers. All yeah. of us are radio broadcasters. It's right there at your fingertips. Yeah. And that's such a revolutionary change from three decades ago that it's, it's, it's almost unimaginable. And not only do we have all that bandwidth and that communication capacity, but it's also permanent. Sword, you know, because television stations back in the 1960s, you broadcast something and once then it was and it gone. was gone. Gone, gone, gone. And, it was and now, gone. This, now videos have the same permanence as books. That's it's so stunning. True. And, you know, people say, you know, I was talking to Russell Brand the other day and I like Russell and he's very, very smart. Yeah, and, sharp and guy. St stunningly smart at times. And he said, you know, he was talking about people not having a voice. And I thought, who? Wait, <laughs> you have a voice now if you who? want it. All you you yeah. can just sit in front of your computer and you can talk to as many people as will listen to you. Yeah. That's a voice. It's like, yeah. can you do anything with that? Well, perhaps not, but perhaps yeah. you can too. Not not only not only is there a voice, there's an algorithm that will amplify interest. Meaning, if people enjoy what you're saying, science will push it out to more people. So it's it is wow, it's like it it's merit on crack. You know, it's merit on steroids. You could be saying the most interesting thing on a soapbox in New York and maybe 10 or 15 people hear about it and then they never hear about it again. But the fact that YouTube or these different platforms are incentivized to share your shit that people like, never a better time. Never a better time to have some merit. Yeah. 
Yeah. I don't want to take too much of your time, Jordan. I could talk to you all day, but this has been uh, this has been a thrill, man. Thank you so much. Uh, hey, I've enjoyed our conversation a lot, yeah. especially the discussion about power and merit. I really found that useful and interesting. And it's very much worth delving into and thinking through. And I do, I do encourage you as well for what it's worth to think through this discipline issue with your wife and with regards to the kids that you're going to have and aim at 50 50 right you yeah. guys you want to make an ind you want to make a unit yeah. you want to be you want to have each other's backs with regards to your disciplinary decisions because the children need to see you as a unified front mm. and they'll test and push to see if they can push between you and they'll see if they can manipulate you or your wife because they want to see how strong that bond is mm. but they're going to be much much happier if the same story is coming from both people. Mm. So, and maybe you can practice with your dog. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to do that. I, I really appreciate this so much. Thank you so much for the advice and just the time and, uh, and keep in touch. If there's anything that you need, we're here to help. Uh, we really appreciate this, man. Thanks, man. It was great. I'm, I appreciated the conversation very much. Absolutely.